You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to Longform. I'm Aaron Lammer here on the phone with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, my co-host. Hello. Evan Ratliff is back from his uh, undisclosed reporting location. Glad that you're alive. I am indeed alive, but I can't reveal to you anything about where I've been. Evan, Not only tell us Evan where al- you've been. Come on, man. <laughs> it wasn't even that crazy. I was just in court for a few weeks and I couldn't take my phone in. <laughs> oh, it was crazy. It. You know what else is crazy, Aaron? Uh, today that? is Evan's birthday. He turned 58 years old today. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Um, on the show this week, Charlie Warzel, uh, someone I've wanted to have on the show uh, for quite a while. In fact, actually, I'm going to I'm going to put this out there because I think it's uh, it deserves a mention. Uh, I am the host of uh, the co-host of three podcasts. And uh, Charlie Warzel is the first confirmed triple threat has appeared on all three. He is a uh BuzzFeed technology reporter, but uh, I think in our uh, discussion, we actually talked about what he does as more covering the culture of technology or perhaps what technology culture has wrought upon America. Um, This is a really good time to have this conversation, actually. like We couldn't have picked a better week. Yeah, it feels like the world is currently trying to catch up with Charlie Warzel's reporting. Uh, He's been on this beat for a while. Uh, I talked to him about the fatigue and stress that goes along with it, uh, as well as just the weirder uh, elements he comes in contact with. Hey, if our uh, if our listeners want to catch up on those other podcasts you co-host, one of them's called Stoner, the other's uh, called Coin Talk. People should go listen to them. Aaron's doing a particularly good job on Coin Talk. I want to say it's fun to hear Zoo Crew, Aaron, full Zoo Crew. Thank you. I appreciate that. Stoner currently on hiatus, but we'll be back soon. Uh, multiple, at least one episode of Coin Talk, if not more, every week. And if you want to know about things that come out every week, the best way is through email. That's what people actually check. They check their email boxes. There's no better way than to get into people's email boxes than with MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp, for your support of the show. And now here's Aaron with Charlie Warzel. Welcome, uh, Charlie Warzel. Hey, thanks for having me. You are calling from uh, Montana. I am. I am. I'm here in Missoula, Montana, where it's almost the end of a very long winter. <laughs> uh, 
I want to talk about how you ended up in Montana, but just before I even uh, launch into that, this is a strange time for someone who does what you do to be living pretty far off the beaten path, not in uh, Palo Alto, not in uh, New York City. Yeah. You know, it's a strange time, but it's also, <laughs> I feel really great to sort of have that remove. So I, uh, I, I moved here to Montana in July of 2017. And really, I kind of thought when I, when I was going to do it that it was, uh, was going to be maybe a potentially career-ending move for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, I was uh, reporting in New York for the better part of the, the past 10 years. And so I've always had a remove from Silicon Valley to some degree. But this was, you know, obviously I'm putting myself sort of out in the, out in the, the wilderness, so to speak, in comparison to New York City or Palo Alto. But you know, I've really found that being out here, at least the way that I work, I probably, if I was a beat reporter just covering one company, it, it's probably a disastrous move. But for me, sort of keeping tabs on all the different areas of the internet that I do and tech in general, I found that it's it's really great to have that kind of distance, especially like psychologically, it's really nice to be able to actually physically step outside of that world and just be in a place where people aren't really concerned with this stuff as much. <laughs> so how did you get in the to the point where you had to escape to have some distance from this stuff? Like, what was your toe dip into uh, reporting about technology? So um, I started out as a like desk assistant and sort of really grunt level producer at NBC News, uh, working in Washington D.C. right out of college, um, and that was sort of the a couple of internships led me down this TV production path and sort of into politics. And I sort of just loved the drama and spectacle of politics, but TV is really was never for me in the sense that th there's a lot of barriers when you're talking about television. You always have to be in the same room as all the satellites and the cameras, uh, whereas, you know, writing and especially sort of this is in the, you know, the late aughts, early 2010s, you know, noticing how, you know, as long as you had an Internet connection, you could sort of be in the mix. You know, you could get in there on Twitter. Yep. And, and a lot of the, you know, the reporting that I was seeing and a lot of the great stories that I was reading and it was all kind of coming from younger people who were just sort of throwing themselves into the larger conversation and doing really interesting things, whether it was, you know, just random researchers or investigators on Twitter or, you know, even just places, outlets at establishment publications like Grantland who are just, you know, telling stories in a new, fun way. And it sort of just got me really excited in the prospect of only needing a laptop and, uh, you know, a smartphone or something to kind of break in. So I, I got into writing that way. And tech reporting was really a complete, uh, <laughs> like, I fell into it. I've always been super interested in culture, media, politics, and technology sort of around the time I started to get into it, 2011, 2012, sort of seemed like the nexus for all of that. And it sort of it felt like a cheat code to me because technology was quickly becoming everything, the sort of connective tissue for the world. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when I was looking over, like, the stories that you've written, say, in 2018 for BuzzFeed, I'm not sure that, like, future generations would even recognize these as technology stories. Like, <laughs> technology is often kind of the, like, gasoline thrown onto some kind of a fire. But um, 
a lot of this stuff is more about the culture that technology has wrought. I think that's totally right. And I think that's always sort of been my my initial excitement about this. I mean, it's definitely the reason why I came to BuzzFeed in 2013 to do it, because I left NBC, spent a little time doing like, you know, blogging on my own, and then eventually ended up at Adweek magazine, where I covered digital media. And it was a very sort of focused beat. You know, it was very, it was about some of the advertising industry and how that was that changing. And it was about, you know, companies, including BuzzFeed, uh, which I covered that were sort of making forays into this space. But, but watching some of my now colleagues start the news area of BuzzFeed in 2012, I really noticed that the technology coverage was based on what's now this kind of cliche of treating tech as culture. Uh, but then it was kind of more of a revelatory idea. It's, you know, if you looked at sort of the gizmodos of the world in 2011, 2010, so much of it was about you know the gadget blogging culture and yeah. Matt Buchanan and John Herman who started uh, BuzzFeed's text section which was then called Forward you know sort of brought this idea that you know it was going to be sort of about as you just said technology as like the fuel for all of this and as like the overwhelming context to just culture and society and I- I've never been interested in you know. I write about like Apple keynotes, but they're two hour long commercials, really. And, you know, product updates and press release tech journalism has always been very boring. And what I've been interested in drawn to is the uh, the idea that the Internet has just come in and warped and changed everything it's touched and often not for the better. So there's this very specific moment of time where BuzzFeed shifts from something that you would be writing about to someone that you're writing for. Tell me about like, did that leap like phase you at all? Yeah, I, I was I was nervous in the sense of is a completely different world, you know, is sort of a, a metrics focused organization that had this, you know, sort of less so now, but more so in 2013 when I joined this, you know, focus on being viral and telling stories in a way that, you know, will appeal to a really large audience um, and trying to get the news to do that to some degree. So, I, you know, I think there was like my general just anxiety over whether or not I could write things that people, a lot of people would care about or that I could, you know, sort of find my own way into that, especially that 2012, 2013, a little bit more list heavy, a little bit more fun style of BuzzFeed. So there was that worry, but sort of in terms of being a part of something that's also reporting on tech working at ostensibly partially a technology company like BuzzFeed, that's never really worried me. I've always kind of just like put my head down on it and said, you know, that's just the nature of of media now. And I think so many other places would agree, you know, almost every media organization has at some point had, you know, some either trial or full partnership with Facebook, you know, to create some kind of content for them. And it's just a messy world in that regard. But I've never sort of let it get in the way of, you know, writing about Facebook. And and I sort of, with BuzzFeed in general, as a tech reporter, I've always just really put my head down and not cared about it. So, when I look at like the the slate of stories you've done, let's say in the last few months, like uh, you wrote about deep fakes, these like videos that uh, people's face gets uh, switched out with celebrity uh, faces on porn bodies and all of this kind of, I think one of the terms someone used to describe it is like reality apathy mm-hmm. material. When you're looking at like 
the sort of overall panorama of tech stories available to you at a given time, um, like how are you picking what threads are important to you? And is that something that's evolved over the last few years as you've like settled in and you're kind of a, a veteran reporter now? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I well, I think, you know, one thing that I've noticed sort of over the the years and, and I certainly don't mean this to come off in any way braggy. If anything, it's it's really just a testament to like John Herman and Matt Buchanan's and Ben Smith, our editor-in-chief's original view for what tech should be at BuzzFeed. But it's this idea that we sort of, for a bunch of years, 2013, 2014, 2015, really, we were sort of playing around on the fringes of a lot of these things. And we were very early on deeply skeptical of Facebook, but also, you know, take something like Gamergate, right? When that sort of bubbled up in 2014, Joe Bernstein, my colleague, who um, who has sat next to me for the last five years as we've been dealing with this stuff, it seemed like a really sort of niche story about gamers and online harassment um, that maybe, you know, wasn't worth the time of many mainstream media organizations. And our sort of theory the entire time has been like follow that weird thread because all this, you know, dark stuff that's happening on the Internet like there are real people behind that. And and those are real ideologies that are worth looking at. And who knows, you know, who knows how this might bubble up or what kind of permutations it might have, what mainstream associations might, you know, catch on and, and glom themselves onto this kind of narrative. And so Joe started covering that Gamergate phenomenon. And I know there were people, Sam Biddle at Gawker, you know, there were people who definitely immersed themselves in that world too. But, you know, Joe had this really comprehensive approach as like this is this isn't just a little flare up on a message board this is part of a culture war and yeah and if you look at joe's reporting as that has evolved you know he's kind of just kept taking that narrative and building it and immersing himself in that world and teasing it out and and doing you know original on the ground reporting with those individuals and it's led him to be one of the first people to really sort of see that like pro-trump internet rise up and, you know, the world of Milo Yiannopoulos and all those different trolls. And that's something that, you know, the rest of the tech team has sort of come along with him on. It it led me to start paying attention to online harassment in a really sort of granular way starting in, you know, 2015, which led to a whole bunch of reporting on Twitter um, and this general immersion in the the rise in the last, you know, three years of the pro-Trump media and this broader culture war on the internet. And so that's a really long way of saying, I think we were out in this, like playing in these weird areas and it seemed kind of maybe silly or stupid or inconsequential at times to people, or maybe it just didn't make sense. And I, I really think, you know, to the credit of the larger vision of BuzzFeed editorially, a lot of people have kind of met us there now. Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Tripping. Uh, When I am planning a vacation, I generally 
would prefer to stay at a vacation rental rather than a hotel. Why? Uh, they come with stock kitchens, extra bedrooms, hot tubs. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, I'm currently uh, looking to get one when I am going to a wedding. And uh, usually when I do it, I look at a ton of different sites. Uh, I no longer do, however, because of Tripping.com, where one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place so you can find the best deal on the perfect vacation rental for you. Best of all, you can join millions of travelers who find savings of up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms on Tripping.com. So I want you to go to Tripping.com. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G.com slash long form to find your perfect vacation rental. Again, Tripping.com slash long form. Here I am back with Charlie Warzel. This is like a question that I feel like I would be more traditionally asking a war reporter or like someone who's like uh, reported a lot internationally. But um, when I look at the kinds of stories that you're talking about, um, the stories about the intersection of like far right media and the technology industry and these kinds of controversies, like war is not the wrong comparison word here. And now we're going into years deep in this story, the story that started with Gamergate and has just so many tentacles. Are, is there a fatigue setting in on you as a reporter reporting on this stuff? And also, like, how do you keep making that fresh for an audience? I mean, I, I kind of make that war reporting analogy sometimes, and I always have to kind of catch myself because I certainly don't want to compare with it with <laughs> a uh, asterisk and yeah. a uh, LOL like next to it. I mean, I, not, I don't think that uh, the stakes are the same for someone reporting on it, but I do think that these kinds of stories both have the ability to numb uh, the intended audiences. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all that, and I think that you know, it, reporting about the internet and being on the internet. And really, sort of doing it in a, in a comprehensive way is a type of foreign correspondence, whether because you go into these communities and you get yeah. to know them, and and but yeah, it's incredibly exhausting because it's constantly evolving, and and so many people's beats obviously do evolve, but you know the speed with which this stuff changes, and and sort of how it's marching like ever onward you know, more toxic direction. I I think it really is numbing for myself and for a lot of other people. I mean, today I got a tip in my inbox about, you know, a number of uh, terrible child exploitation videos on YouTube and, you know, like really sort of graphic things like that that show up every day that you just have to sort of, you know, dig into and see if and sometimes they're real, sometimes they're not. But but whether it's that, whether it's, um, you know, just trolls or Nazis or racists, like, I, I think it is, it's really numbing. And I think that it's work that I, I can't emphasize how much I feel that, like, everyone's doing a really great job who covers this, but there is this sort of seat of the pants mentality to it. Like, it's always changing. You know, I don't think there's any, there are some standards and practices for how do you cover, you know, a nascent troll movement on the internet. But all these different, you know, whether it's a moral or ethical quandary or, you know, should I blur this screenshot or is this outing someone's personal information? If these questions appear all the time and, you know, as a reporter in that world, 
you have to go fast and you have to try to do it the best you can. And there's not, you know, a really good J school handbook for that. So I think that that also kind of creates this difficulty and this thing that can kind of wear on you. But I also think at the same time, you mentioned how do you make it interesting for people? Um, yeah. I think in a way that stories about what's difficult for a foreign correspondent, let's say, I think, or what I, what I feel might be difficult for them is to try to take something that feels so foreign to a lot of people that, that is happening in another region of the world and making it you know relevant. And I think that a lot of times the internet feels so personal, Facebook, Twitter, you know, YouTube, yeah, they, everyone's they feel like, so hey, personal. Hey, Facebook, I'm on Facebook. Exactly. And so I feel <laughs> like actually you don't have that problem. You know, if I can show how a lot of that, that there is this trend on YouTube where people are sort of, you know, having these child exploitation videos that look like they're actually made for children. You know, like anyone who's a parent can see that and, and immediately, you know, really worry about, you know, that genre of entertainment that their kid might be subjected to. Um, but you know, but when you write about that kind of stuff, sure. like YouTube has said, uh, we're not going to put this stuff up anymore. Or like in the case of those deep fakes, porn hub has said like, eh, we're actually not going to let people do these like weird sort of quasi consent, like digital recreations of celebrities having sex. We're banning them. And then a, there's a certain kind of reporting. that would just be like, Hey, they said they were getting rid of these, but uh, actually I still found tons of them. And you occasionally like that plays into the reporting you do. I assume that there's a limit for people where it's just like, how many times are you going to tell me about YouTube banning something and then mm -hmm. not really enforcing it or whatever? Like these stories quickly can become repetitive if they aren't given something more. Yeah. I mean, it, that's difficult for sure. And I think, you know, I'm actually approaching somebody described like my job back to me a couple of weeks ago and was like, oh, yeah, you're just a you're just a platforms, uh, you know, a big tech accountability monitor, essentially. And it, <laughs> it was just like a really sort of hit me at the core of my being. I was like, yeah. oh, God, like, am I really just sort of like a regulator in D.C., you know, under the fluorescent lights, just like stamping like am I an FCC yeah. monitor for the Internet and, and investigating and, whether they've like made good on their like regulatory promises? Right. And and that that is like, oh, you know, partially that falls onto me and trying to make, you know, these stories more relevant and, and less sort of, you know, just procedure of bad thing. I found it. Now, you know, we go for comment to the platform. And I do think you're right. Those things start to get a little stale. But but I also I think that we're kind of creeping up on this really weird period right now where we, the people that use the internet, are sort of waking up after a decade plus of using these amazing free services and just importing all of our information on there. And sort of like I think part of the, you know, the big tech reckoning that we're seeing sort of over the last, you know, basically since the election isn't really about the election. It isn't really about Trump or politics. And it's more about this idea that like, wow. These services have incredibly uh, real consequences in our everyday lives. And, you know, I think that realization is really profound and it's going to shape how how we try to figure out what it means to be online from here on out. And I think that to keep stories relevant, we have to sort of keep that in mind and try to figure out how to speak to to that audience and how to kind of guide them through that reckoning. I'm curious how you try to take that idea and turn it into 
a narrative because I think there's like a tremendous sense of foreboding and darkness right now and that most people can identify that there is something terribly wrong on the internet right now but that's not a story that's like a weird ominous tone it's like a strange chord that's being played in the background like when you kind of pick up on that and you can sort of describe all the threads that are contributing to it like what's it like trying to actually like make stories out of that It's really difficult. Um, It's getting more difficult. What's making it more difficult now? I think the fact that the problem that that phrase, you know, like uh, there's something wrong on the Internet, it's becoming very obvious. So the so what becomes more (laughs) more difficult. Right. Um, I mean, I think I think it's critical right now to sort of get a window into some of these big tech companies and the people who are making these decisions. Um, and I think that that is like a retroactive window. Like I think we still really need to examine and interrogate and report on how Facebook looked at privacy from 2007 to 2014 and the decisions that it made in that time period where it became, you know, where it went from a, a fun website to like eating half of the internet's advertising revenue. I think we need to know more about that. So, th- so that you know is sort of a granular level of how you how you answer that question. Um, but I think also the way to turn this into narratives for me, or the thing that I'm constantly looking for, are just real people, like at any turn. And I find that it's almost it, whenever you can get a story about that shows you know how the internet sort of comes down and affects one person's life. I I don't think that there's any cliche there. I think that's actually what all of this stuff is really about, is sort of the the maxim I'm always yelling at people is that the internet is real life. And I think that in order to, you know, drive that home, I'm just constantly looking for that story that shows how someone's life is transformed by all this. As a writer, like what are the techniques of depicting the internet as real life rather than something else my sort of theme for these sorts of stories very vaguely are like normal person is out in the world acts the way that you would expect comes to something through the internet and their story is sort of like it's basically like a uh, some combination of a hall of mirrors and like an amplifier, right? Like it just sort of like yeah. you put it through the internet machine and something extraordinary happens. Either that person is radicalized or they find themselves in some crazy situation. And, and I think that that sort of drives it home because I think what we're fundamentally trying to deal with in these stories is the idea of how are our all the things that we used to do for decades and decades, how has it changed when you can now do all those things and immediately find an audience of either hundreds of thousands or millions of people? Or, you know, like what happens when Donald Trump retweets you? You know, that can take like an ordinary person or when Donald Trump tweets at you, you know, that can take an ordinary person's, like it happened in, I think, 2016, like a steelworker union guy in Indiana, I think it was, who like immediately was besieged with phone calls and home visits, you know, of people people trolling him because he spoke out against Donald Trump and Trump tweeted at him. Like things like that where, you know, ordinary person put in an extraordinary situation because of the internet. I think that those things are really helpful reminders. And also, I mean, even just detailing how 
you know, the anonymous layers of the internet, you know, this is pretty tried and true right now, and rather, this is pretty cliche right now, but, um, but just, you know, how we act so much differently when we have those layers of anonymity and what that can do. I think that we're still not done sort of exploring that. And sometimes it can be delightful. Like I wrote, I wrote a story in, uh, the summer of 2017 about the people who reply to Trump tweets and trying to like draft off of their <laughs> tweets to to get That's like a whole culture to get a viral lift yeah and then there's these like insane debates happening in the comment threads that go for you know 15,000 tweets long or something ridiculous like that yeah. but th- those stories can be you know delightful and it's like you could never ever have dreamed up that this 140 character messaging service would you know, give it 10, 15 years or, and it would turn and devolve into this, you know, beast. Um, so I think kind of mapping those changes is important. But what I'm looking for always is to try to find the people behind the screens, because I think that's the only way that we start to understand and get, you know, just develop some level of empathy for what's happening in this kind of weird changing world. I get the feeling that The most, like the people who are the most emblematic of this age are the people who've exploited it the most effectively, uh, be it Donald Trump or I know you've written a lot about Alex Jones of Mm -hmm. InfoWars. Yeah. And so this is a question that I've also asked of Rukmini Kalamachi from the New York Times in her reporting about ISIS. But- Taking someone like Alex Jones or uh, some of the alt-right figures that you've reported on all the way into like deeper, pure troll culture, 4chan culture, a lot of these people want publicity. If anything, like their entire purpose uh, above all is to gather attention. Um, And certainly someone like Alex Jones could ultimately be said uh, to be seeking like an audience. As a reporter covering this stuff, like how do you not give these people what they want by paying attention? Or how do you draw any sort of separation between your objectives and their objectives? Um, because it's got to be good uh, if you're a troll or a all right guy to get a BuzzFeed story written about you. Yeah, I think that's something that I struggle with in every story that I do on these folks and and to think that like I don't I don't think that I get it right all the time and there are times when I have published something and I've seen sort of the reaction from somebody and it seems maybe a little like a little bit giddy or a little celebratory and and I you know I think this is again I'll go back to the idea you know there's no handbook really for this kind of stuff sure. um and but I don't think that excuses it obviously and and I think that for the most part myself and a lot of my colleagues have done a good job. But I I think that the best, obviously the best way to do it is to, you know, to get the goods, to get the, is to not ever rely on access, never let a story hinge on these people talking about it. Um, so I think that yeah. that part of not letting them control the conversation is important. And when when I profiled Alex Jones last spring, you know, we got 
dug up a, an old police report of his for some fights that he'd gotten into. We spoke to a bunch of his old former employees. Classic brawl in the uh, parking lot of a community radio station. We've <laughs> all been there. We've that, all been there. That's right. And, and you know, I, I was one of the first reporters to fly down to Austin for his child custody trial that he explicitly told me he did not want the press to attend and tried to get us, you know, barred from. And then it was myself and a reporter from the Austin Statesman, and then a bunch of of media came down, and it turned into this spectacle. But that was definitely him not being able to control that narrative and letting that portion of his life and the revelations that, you know, he said, oh, I'm just playing a part here. All that stuff kind of spilled out as a result of not letting him control the narrative. And whether that or not, the the end of the day, that PR is good for him because people who love Alex Jones and then consequently hate BuzzFeed read a negative article in BuzzFeed and, you know, then realize they're on the right side. I don't know what those effects are necessarily, but I know that in the case of that reporting, in the case of other reporting, you know, if they call you up after and they're, and they're yelling at you, like, you know, there's a decent chance that you've done the right thing in not letting them control the narrative. Well, I think it's newsworthy that Alex Jones would at least claim in a courtroom that like Infowars is a performance and is like in character, like uh, considering like the audience and the influence and the influence of the president, that alone seems newsworthy to me. The part that really like caught me, I guess, when I was reading it and I was like always wondering sort of how you thought about it was like. I feel like maybe it was in like the headline that BuzzFeed did or something. It was kind of like one of the conclusions is like Alex Jones is a genius, you know, like he is a genius at like threading together these conspiracies, like the way that he takes on the fly uh, material and like crafts it into conspiracy narrative is genius. And I think I'm both inclined to agree with you and sort of uncomfortable with that notion. Yeah. And I think that that's the nature, right, of all of this, of the rise of the pro-Trump media. You know, like you can say and make a really great case that they're grifters and that, you know, a lot of them are are actively harming political discourse and, you know, and threatening very fundamental things that bunch up against, you know, whether or not we can be a good democracy. And I think you can also then note that they have a real penchant for capturing attention and using all the weaponizing these social media platforms and and just general media coverage um, around. I, I think that we have going back to Jones it, last summer, I had to write a lot about when Megyn Kelly did a, a big primetime interview with him. And there was a lot of consternation about whether or not that interview should air, whether or not she's giving this platform to Jones. It touches on a lot of these same issues. And and I think that there's such a instinct right now that if there are these uncomfortable truths out there that we should just, you know, sort of put them to the side or not really talk to them. And Alex Jones can be one of those uncomfortable truths. But I don't agree that these things should be either shouldn't be examined or or that, you know, we can't talk about Alex Jones's sort of um, – performative and narrative manipulation genius, so to speak, that, that we can't talk about that because I think, you know, our job, my job is to wrap that around the context of how harmful this is and to talk about, you know, the people who uh, spend all their money on his pharmaceutical or nutraceutical products um, and how his discourse has 
sort of poisoned American politics to some degree. I think we have to talk about both of those things and we have to weigh them because I think if the last five years has taught us anything, it's that sort of pushing trolls further back into the darkness like doesn't do any good. Um, it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not a better strategy for this. And I think talking this all through has given me sort of an answer to that previous question of, you know, how do you know when to cover these people and not? And I think that there's you're constantly assessing the newsworthy value of this um, and whether or not you can get some insights into these people. I think that there was something really valuable about reporting on Alex Jones and even Megyn Kelly's, you know, kind of puff PC interview on primetime TV. I think if you can expose who he is to more people, more people understand who Alex is. I think that that's beneficial. Even if a couple people end up, you know, kind of intrigued and wanting to see more for themselves, you know, you can't control that, but you can sort of control how to contextualize who all these people are and what they're doing. Yeah, it's almost a little bit like when um, people leave cults and a lot of times the way that they'll like eventually sort of break free from a a restrictive order is to just Google their own cult, like at a library or something like that. Mm. And someone who's left the cult will have put up some information and created a website and sort of dutifully logged it there, not even knowing if someone from the cult is ever going to like come along and like seek this information But the fact that it's there means that at some point, if anyone sort of goes looking for it, like the information does exist. Some of this stuff feels like it's like, I I don't know if it's for now or it's for later or for what, you know, I mean, I'm grateful that people are documenting this era while I still don't know how it will actually affect how this era plays out. Yeah, I think that that's an extremely important part of it is to just sort of be there to see it. And and I think that also... I'm just a big believer in the sense of the way to get big blockbuster stories or, you know, is to immerse yourself in in the minutia of these things and of these movements. And, and you know, sometimes you'll write a story and maybe, you know, you'll feel like it didn't hit in the right way. But I think I think it's also how how you end up sort of getting to the real meat of things. And I, I don't I think you have to sort of embrace the long game when it comes to reporting some of this stuff. And I don't think we know how any of it's going to shake out, but it's it's certainly worth documenting to me. And I, I, I think if for no other reason, then there's a lot of people who it's very easy when you're reporting on these niche movements on the internet to feel like everyone knows about it. But I'm still so surprised that I can write an article about some facet of the pro-Trump media or something that's just always in my face. And I'll get a dozen emails from people saying, I had no idea. I didn't know this. Or, you know, I brought this conversation up and my son started talking about it. And he hangs out in some of these, you know, message board communities. And, and I, you know, that's not for me to, I'm not trying to eradicate that or, or teach parents how to talk to their kids about trolls. I'm not trying to tell parents to keep their kids off Reddit, but it's not a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, and it and but I just think that, you know, when you're in the weeds, sometimes it's hard to know what's what other people really know about what's this real. stuff. Yeah, and I yeah. and I constantly find myself surprised by, you know, how things resonate with people or how how the third time I'm reporting the story, somebody comes to it and it's their sort of 
revelatory moment that oh my gosh wow the alt-right is it's, you know doing is this the, um, so. is the spiraling complexity of this stuff becoming a challenge like there was a point where like being into tech was like knowing about the new iphone <laughs> and like now it's like you have topics like cryptocurrency coming up that require these like fundamental knowledges of cryptography and like investment markets and also scams and like the dark web, like all of these different swirling topics. How do you think about the knowledge level of the person you're writing for? It's hard. I'm bad with that. Like I have a, <laughs> my sort of problem with being immersed in a lot of this stuff or going, spending, you know, the entirety of all of my days going down weird internet related rabbit holes. I, I don't, I constantly have to be reminded to scale back for the normal unaccustomed reader. But I think the best way in on those things is to find, again, sort of like the human angle. So I don't I haven't written a ton about cryptocurrencies. Right. But I have yeah. written with my colleague Ryan Mack a bunch of stories about cryptocurrency scammers and, you know, how people are using Twitter accounts to impersonate people like Elon Musk and to dupe people into this. And and I find that, you know, a story like that is really appealing to me because it allows you to talk about cryptocurrency in sort of a uh, basic way, but it also has this, you know, veneer of a, you know, a heist or a low stakes heist or a scam that people can really understand. Like, oh, this is real money and people are losing it. And it also speaks to the weirdness of social networks and how, you know, impersonation is not being dealt with properly by Twitter. So it kind of like hits these like five different points, checks all these different boxes. And I think it's a way in that people can really relate to rather than just sort of, you know, talking about the white paper of some kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> crypto coin. You get to sort of talk about how this stuff is is really affecting actual people. And also, you know, long form knows better than most people like people love like a good mystery or yarn of that yeah. sort of thing and i think that that's cr happening little crime in the mix Ev that's happening like everywhere I, you know the sort yeah. of like the true crime of the internet stories are like just being written now um and yeah. i think there's just like it's a target rich environment <laughs> <laughs> i mean in some ways i feel like you got lucky because the story you were following became the biggest story in the American news cycle. And another way I feel a little bit sorry for you in that you're pretty deeply immersed in like one of the like territories that's had one of the like more dark falls over the last couple of years. Is it like taking a toll on you personally being so deeply involved in this stuff? And like, I know that it's not just, professional like the person charlie uh warzall is like on twitter with like a bunch of like trolls and people who know who your real identity is like what's the personal experience of this been like well i live in montana now no um uh, <laughs> heavily armed <laughs> no <laughs> um no i i think i'm interested in this stuff and i'm always drawn to kind of the uh the fucked up side of things like i I am a bit of a moth to that flame. So it's not just like, I don't want anyone to feel bad about this. Like I have a really interesting job and, I, and I'm really glad that I can do it most of the time. I think, I think that I'm, I find myself taking like 
longer breaks from the internet. Like in the past six months, I've noticed that I, I kind of just at like six, six o'clock at night, if I can, like I'll try to only check my email like one or two times or something, you know, just to make sure that, and I don't, I don't use push notifications for anything. Like my phone does not alert me to anything because I just don't need that kind of stimulus. So, so there's no, there's no news story so big that it would push notify you. You would be like locked out fly fishing in the Montana wilderness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I, I make an effort to, you know, to check my email, to do like a quick scan of Twitter a lot, but there's this really funny thing when I, when I, my first job in a newsroom was in NBC's Washington newsroom. And I noticed that all of the people who had like, you know, like the news desk jobs um, who were just, you know, constantly like dispatching reporters to this thing and just having to be on top of the news every day obsessively, they would all go on these vacations and be like, yeah, I'm going off to Alaska to this cabin that we rent every year. You know, there's, you have to take a seaplane to get there and there's no internet. And, you know, it's just like, and, all these different people did some permutation of that. And I was just like, why is everyone going to these, you know, remote places? And now I'm like, oh, no, I get it. Like, I want, like, when I take vacations, I want to be completely unplugged. Like, if you're going to have a job that is this fast-paced, that is this changing, and that can get this dark, you have to unplug. I think you have to be chained to it until you reach a certain point and then you need to know when to step away otherwise you do burn out uh, today i guess to date this <laughs> podcast uh <laughs> kanye west started you know tweeting some videos from scott adams who's you know uh, the dilbert creator and really involved in the sort of pro-trump media universe and the pro-trump media world which is something i cover is sort of trying to figure out how involved Kanye West is and if he's one of them. And just like I saw that on Twitter this morning and like let out this like deep guttural like moan and was just sort of like, oh, I'm so tired. Like, I don't know if my, you know, spirit can handle like Kanye West, you know, one of the Internet's most beloved and like viral humans, like jumping onto the beat. Um, so I think the way that I cope with it is I try to disconnect when I can. But it is difficult because it is a job that rewards you for being constantly, like, you know, jacked into the mainframe, so to speak. I feel like I'm going to, like, come upon some, like, commune in 2050, and it's going to be, like, all 21st century tech reporters who've, like, chosen to live in some sort of, like, an intentional silent community without the internet or something. Yeah, I'm starting that. It's in it's yeah. here in Montana. So Yeah, I was going to say, you've got a great place for it. I'm taking applications now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Charlie Warzel. Hey, thanks to the NPR station there in Missoula, Montana, for uh, helping us put this together thanks to our editor janelle pfeiffer to our intern angela velez of course to my co-hosts max linsky and evan ratliff uh thanks to the good people at mailchimp and the good people at tripping.com for helping to sponsor this show we come to you every wednesday with a new episode if you're enjoying the show maybe rate it in uh, apple podcasts or uh just send us an email editors at longform.org we love to hear from you see you next week
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.